Welcome to the IOTICS podcast. By listening, you've joined a community. A community of pioneers who believe that fearless innovation and intelligent cooperation can inspire and deliver meaningful change. Today's guest is the Right Honourable Caroline Flint, who in her roles as the chairs of the Committee on Fuel Poverty and Humber Teaching NHS Foundation Trust, is working to ensure that even as we drive to energy security and net zero, nobody is left behind. A former MP for Don Valley, Caroline's passion for delivering a fairer society, working at every level from Whitehall to Town Hall, is inspiring. Her message of hope and ambition, built on trust and blame-free communication, with people at its absolute heart, is a rallying cry for us all. Fair warning, the statistics at the start of our discussion are bleak, but I think you'll agree Caroline makes the case that the challenges we face are not insurmountable and that we must together find a way to solve our problems. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the IOTX podcast. I want to talk to you initially about fuel poverty. So you are the chair of the Committee on Fuel Poverty and uh, you know it's timely. We are in a freezing cold winter, bitter, bitter storms raging. I mean, what is the scale of the problem in 23-24? Yeah, I mean, the Committee on Fuel Poverty um, that I chair only deals with um, England and there are similar sort of advisory groups in Wales and Scotland. I don't think so in Northern Ireland. But yeah, fuel poverty has been around for a, a long time, I think, but the last couple of years uh, it's really been brought into stark relief, partly because people are still living in homes that are not good enough, they're not warm enough, they're not insulated enough. But of course, the massive surge in prices, you know, for lots of people, not just those who would be defined as in fuel poverty, has had an impact and continues to have an impact. The last official stats uh, that were produced in uh, early in 23 for 2022, according to the measurements that's used by government, which is what we monitor, yeah. of course, there's lots of other views around what uh, the stats should be is 3.26 million households living in fuel poverty in England. And that was a rise of 100,000 from 2021. And last year, um, when the stats were published, and uh, they showed that actually looking to the next set of stats, which are due shortly, they're likely to rise again. So obviously, we're keenly waiting for the publication of those stats. I think sometimes, you know, in terms of the public discussion on fuel poverty um, it's not something really that is major headlines Uh, energy prices are uh, and of course the government spent a huge amount of money to provide an energy price guarantee and lots of us found ourselves thinking well how do we conserve our energy what else should we do to keep those prices down but for the people who were in fuel poverty before that crisis hit you can imagine how much more difficult it was and we did a research project to look at last winter, 22-23, to see what happened, what sort of behaviours happened. And it was quite clear that for people in fuel poverty who are usually low income and in very, very inefficient homes, they were self-disconnecting. And by that, I mean, if there are lots of these people who are on prepayment meetings, they just stop putting the key in. They don't load the key, which is the sort of, you know, um, accesses the energy. They were doing things like um, only heating one room in the house, Now, on one level, that sort of can make sense. The problem is, you know, if you're in a drafty terrace house or or not a very well-built house, 
or flat for that matter, um, just heating one room just doesn't help the general coldness. And if you've got kids or you've got extra health needs um, because of health conditions that you're living with or disabilities, um, you can imagine how hard that is. There were, there were stories of people just using their oven door and leaving it open to warm. There were people using some of these you know, like those tray barbecue sets that you yeah. can buy at, at various stores, using that to cook food rather than actually using the oven. And, uh, I mean, just people just looking for all different ways they could think, well, what could we do here to not use that energy? And I think as much as anything else, some of that was because people couldn't quite quantify how much they were using and how much it was going to cost at the end of the day. Sometimes they weren't able to access the support. Sometimes their energy supplies really didn't know how vulnerable and desperate these people living in these households were and are. And what we do know going into this winter, where we are now, is people are carrying a huge amount of debt. Despite the help that was given in 22, and that was welcome, even though we'd like to have seen it more targeted mm. to those most at need, um, people did rack up debt. And not just energy debt, but probably debt in other areas of their spending life. And that's something, again, we're trying to give some attention to. So it is, it is very worrying that in, you know, 2024 that we still have um, in Britain um, huge numbers of people who are living in homes that aren't fit for purpose. And unless we make them more energy efficient, huge numbers of those homes are still going to exist when we get to 2030, 2050, when we're all meant to be net zero. And for those people, for us as GAIN, which is a bigger debate we're having now, is if we're going to get to net zero and that clean agenda, we can't leave these people behind. No, and, and that's something I've heard you say with absolute clarity and repeatedly, that the, the kind of drive towards net zero, um, no one should be left behind. And I think one of the things that I find staggering listening to you is that it's often that we look at uh, winter and the crisis that it brings, not only to individuals, but to the NHS and, and other pieces, that they're often seen as kind of isolated shocks as opposed to a sustained strain, like like you say about people carrying um, debt. And I, and I heard um, Simon Francis from the uh, Fuel Poverty Coalition mm. talking about the fact that even with a slight reduction in energy bills, which has taken it off the front cover that it, uh, of, of the papers that it was at the end of last year before last now, mm. um, energy bills are still double what they were in 2020, 2021. Um, you have 8.3 million people living in cold, damp, adults, not even children, just adults living in cold, damp houses. And I think your own uh, committee had a statistic that um, in order to get the D-rated houses up to spec by 2030, yeah. you would need to be upgrading 365,000 per year every year until 2030? Um, I think it's even higher than that, actually. And, right. And um, the the government has set itself some milestones. Well, they set one for 2020. They missed that one. And they've set a milestone for 2025, which is to get all those EFG properties up to D rating. And then it's meant to be C by 2030, which is actually a target. It's actually a target they've set by government. And as we said in our report last year, and actually, you know, the department we work with, you know, um, Department of Energy Security Net Zero have agreed with this. Uh, unless we ramp up the number of homes that are getting retrofitted, uh, they're not going to meet that 2025 target as well. So whatever happens, <laughs> whatever happens in terms of the general election, um, there's a huge challenge there. And 
you know, our job as a committee is obviously to monitor these stats, monitor the delivery of different schemes, um, provide independent advice to government. And that's what we've tried to do. And the thing I think has come out strongly in terms of the last couple of years, the way the methodology works to define people who are in fuel poverty is a mixture of income and the energy efficiency of their home. The problem about when prices go so high, they wipe out the benefits of the energy efficiency. So technically, according to the formula the government currently uses, once a house gets to an EPC rating of C, and there's lots of discussion around how you how people do the EPC ratings and all of that, which I won't go into, but let's just keep it simple. Yeah. Once a low-income family is in a property that is EPC rated C, they're no longer de- deemed as being fuel poor. Even with them carrying debt, even with even, them spending yeah, 10% yeah, it's of their... Just, I think the thing is, is that it's a really interesting example of where pre sort of up to that sort of 2021 period and, and obviously we were in the pandemic before that but you know fuel poverty was declining maybe not as fast as I might have liked but it was the that was the trend and therefore that sort of formula sort of made sense and I do think it's important to have energy efficiency in the mix I mean you know what's in some ways giving people money which half of it just is lost because the heat's going out the windows, out the roofs, doors and everything. You might as well just burn, you know, £10 <laughs> notes. Um, but I think when they were looking at that formula, they didn't take into account these price surges. And I'm not saying that to blame anyone. But we're in a lift different space now. Yeah. Not only in terms of what's happened as a result of um, the Russia-Ukraine war, but also I think other asks of bill payers. From my where I'm standing, bills are going up. So some form of fairness in terms of how much certain groups should pay as a contribution that is just and fair has to be thought about. And um, alongside that is better delivery of the energy efficiency schemes as well. So yeah, some anomalies have come out of this experience we've been going through the last two years that, you know, to be fair, the department, the sponsor department and the government are looking at because they're in the, you know, they're embarking on this review of the fuel poverty strategy. Um, and um, obviously lots of us, um, not just ourselves on the committee fuel poverty are, are making these points. I think it's a really good example that the change in context and circumstances led to a, a need to look again at how the data is being looked at and how mm. th- that's a great example of something I've heard you say before about the need to recognise that these data points are actual people yes. living their lives yes. you know, that, that we, we need to protect and look after and that for all the um, metricizing and measurement, what we're really striving towards is real impactful change mm. for people. Mm. And you said the word yourself, in the fairest way. I mean, it seems to me that there's a lot of good and right driving at net zero that at the moment is being charged for, for want of a better description, on a, on a fairly blanket basis with not a lot of rifle shot or targeting of, of how yeah, it's being done. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, so for a lot of the for a lot of the households that we're most focused on, and as I say, alongside those who have low incomes and living in poor housing, there's a whole raft of other households as well, where it might not be that that household is particularly poor in whatever definition we want to come up with for that. But they're reliant on things like medical equipment, oxygen tanks. Uh, They have to keep probably uh, to a level of warmth that you and I could think, gosh, we'd be sweltering in that situation. Or, or, you know, a a number of things that are important to their health as well. 
And so, you know, there are there is support in some of those areas. But again, it is difficult. And um, we think, uh, and we're not alone, that actually the NHS can play a massive role here, but not just in primary care, but contact points, you know, with patients as well and through voluntary groups as well to make sure that people are, you know, when someone comes into a GP surgery and they have health problems for which cold could be in, you know, exacerbate that, then, you know, a GP, do they know where to go? Does the, you know, the nurse, the asthma nurse know where to go uh, to find support for that person, which they may or may not be aware of? The Utility Week conference that I attended um, a few months before Christmas, one of the sort of workshops that I sat in was quite interesting listening to some of the speakers from the water sector and the power sector. And, you know, they will have, you know, sort of priority services register. And part of the discussion was, I think there'd been a pilot of some sort where uh, some collaboration had gone on in terms of data to look at how, you know, my water's essential to life, power is essential to life. Um, what was their definition of vulnerability? How did they know where people were if there was a, an outage or water wasn't available? What could they learn from each other? And I think, thankfully... That debate is happening now and whilst I accept that all these companies are private companies, they come with a a responsibility beyond the sort of everyday things we might buy to make our life well and keep us happy. This is about survival. This is about survival. I, I think that's so true and I think that um, we at IOTICS have seen around um, vulnerable customers, whatever your definition of vulnerable is and recognising that there's just now starting to be discussions around vulnerable as it was for the PSR, which was mainly around um, health, but mm. also young children and the elderly, now being expanded into financial vulnerability, kind of to circle back on where we started. But that in all cases, what you're looking at is the proportional ability to access information in the right way to look after the most vulnerable members of our society. And that that requires an inordinate amount of trust Mm. in both the policy and the delivery of mm. that policy. I mean, mm. we've seen with uh, smart meters and, and some of the pieces around that, that you you, you can have, um, to read the best into it, well-intentioned policy, and actually the delivery uh, can sit massively at odds and really fundamentally undermine the trust aspects of what we're doing. Mm. I find it fascinating looking over your career. You've been... I won't say uniquely, although I'm sure you'll correct me, but uh, the variety of hats that you've worn both in government, um, in shadow ministerial positions, now as the chair of the Committee of Fuel Poverty and for the Humber uh, Teaching NSS um, Foundation Trust, you know, you really do see the need in its broadest sense. Are there learnings that you take from that in, in the trust bit about how you take people with you on this journey? Well, trust is really important, but also is understanding that whatever, you know, the policymakers at the centre, whatever um, system you set up, people don't always behave the way you expect them to behave, <laughs> you know, and that's a good thing. That's why we're humans. That's why we're not ro robots, she says. Mm, who knows if that's yeah. going to change in 10 years' time? I don't know. I mean, people just don't necessarily behave the way you think and or they don't take information in the way you think. I mean, I think as much as being a minister, I'm so thankful. Well, firstly, I'm thankful for my sort of own family in life because none of them are sort of like they're very ordinary backgrounds and families. My brother, who's it was, you know, 
as a driver for living, he was like my white van man. I, I say, what do you think about this? Or what do you think of that? And I always found it really interesting talking to my own family, but also I was in the head, I, I represented a constituency in Doncaster, you know, sat in the hairdressers or someone collaring you in the dentist or something like this, not in a horrible way. They were always very friendly in South Yorkshire in Doncaster. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, was, I always used to find it really fascinating about We'd be in the sort of like, you know, in, in this, in the thick of it, talking <laughs> a phrase, in London, whether as MPs or as ministers talking about things, obviously reliant on information we would be given by civil servants or, you know, partners that were working with a department to deliver a project. Um, obviously, journalists were picking what they thought was the big story of the day and thinking, this is what everyone's really interested in, this sort of thing. And then, you know, actually you realise, you know, when you sort of, you know, are able to have the fortunate opportunity to be out of that bubble and list something that's a little bit raw, a little bit real. There's no right and wrong about it. And the, and the things that people were talking about weren't those. Um, and also you just think about, I always used to remember delivering, gosh, in 44, I think it's 43 years in the Labour Party, delivering many, many leaflets over the years. And my, I used to say to some of our activists, you know, when they used to say to me, Caroline, we need a six-page leaflet, um, you know, with dense, listen, we've got to get as much on as possible for them to understand what we're all about and everything. And I'd say, you know, it's got probably a seven-second shelf life from being picked up off the mat into the bin at the back of the hall. Unless we get something that attracts their attention and have the most important information on it, then it's going to get lost. Now, I think that applies more generally to communications. How easy is it for people to access? Does it tell them what they most need to know? And importantly, when they follow it up, is the system able to cope with what their questions are and what they want to say? And now, obviously, there's still stuff coming through our doors, but more and more information is online. Mm. And it's really difficult for people to navigate. I don't think, I think, you know, often it's, it's fobbed off as being something that just older people who haven't been brought up in this world have a problem with. But I actually think, I mean, I know, you know, younger people, even my own family, my kids, you know, who are in their early 30s, they've had a few things where they are very savvy, but they've had a few things when they've tried to unpick a problem, it become an absolute nightmare. And they're almost having to invest so much of their time to do it. Now, I think for people who, for whom they might not have a computer, it they might have a smartphone, but you know what? It's not always yep. that easy to navigate. And then when you suddenly got a problem and you're having to go through this sort of barricades of you know, <laughs> bots and things like this who are very frustrating, it's difficult. And I think the trust thing, thing is really a huge issue here uh, about what people do with the information. And again... Uh, I look back uh, to what we found in our research, but also listening to other organisations, um, you know, Citizens Advice, National Energy Action, and Fuel Poverty Coalition and others, you know, what they were hearing from in terms of people about how difficult it was and how let down people felt by some of the agencies and even the energy companies themselves. When push came to shove, they weren't prepared for the surge of people calling, saying, I need help. They just weren't prepared. But your point, Ali, is... It raised a whole number of questions about what is the definition of vulnerability and how do we identify those people? How do we stop people, even if they have different energy providers or water providers, having to repeat the same, have the same conversation over and over again? How is the information updated? How is it shared in a responsible way that fundamentally gets delivery to those people? And that, for me, was a thing in government as well. You can have the theory, and it's not that people are malign, but thinking through actually you know, walking in the shoes of others and understanding what could go wrong. My favourite question as a minister was, tell me the worst thing that could happen here. <laughs> Sometimes I've got a straight answer, not always. Or I'd think, what is the worst thing could happen? What is the worst that could happen here? And 
it's curiosity, I think, sometimes that is missing or willingness to sort of recognise that sometimes, you know, a computer doesn't work the way you want it to. It's not collecting the information where you want to and it's, it's deficient in what it collects because it doesn't put the people, you know, at the heart of that process of what you're doing. I think it's fascinating uh, and just pulling some threads together here, this, this aspect of needing to centre the human experience uh, so as with your leaflets, it's not something you do to people. I, and I can absolutely hear the, the the voice of your your activist going, well, we just need them to understand this. Yes. It's like, uh, knock them on the head a few times yeah, and like, they'll get it. Yeah, hold on. Like, um, if there's something we want to communicate with them or persuade them of yeah, or educate yeah. them on, yeah, then that's yeah. a different conversation. But also that feedback loop of, you know, is it working? Where are the problems? But most particularly, I think, from my, my own perspective, when I think about data and digital, is the what if it doesn't flow smoothly? What if someone yeah. has a problem? What if they either don't understand or in that very human way, they click the button in exactly the way that they definitely wouldn't when we designed it and they do do it. Yeah, exactly. How do they not end up in a reductive loop, loop of okay. someone going, but you fill out the form online. Yes, I tried to do that, but was a problem. Just fill out the form online. Hold on, what's happening here? Yeah. Yeah. So trying to bring people in and their experiences of what you're doing. And a great phrase I heard you use uh, previously was, uh, Whitehall to Town Hall in terms of in terms of the engagement because I I completely see that you do need the policy you know what how are we defining vulnerability what does good look like what is it that we're trying to achieve as an impact but then down to and how are we gathering the experience from people of both their lived experience but also as we bring in tools or processes yeah. or, or or forms that we're not leaving them behind and doing digital to them uh, or doing service provision to them as opposed to doing it with them yeah. for for societal yeah. benefit. Yeah. And again, I think it's how, you know, IT, the digital experience helps us to do the job better. It's not an end in itself. Yeah. And how does it enhance what is able to happen at a more local level? And I, and I think the local level is really important. This I used to f always used to find on my sort of e-newsletter to my constituents who sign up for it and subscribe to it. And we used to be able, we used to be able to look at what were the most favourite stories on it. And so we had like little pictures everywhere. I went, it was a little bit, and then you could click on if you're interested. And it was fascinating because actually people were really interested in what was happening in their neighbourhood, uh, and you know anything that had to do with sort of you know a, a local group or or a, you know something a park or something that was happening or, you know they you could see how people were clicking on that and you know you know rather than the sort of weeks now part of it obviously is that you know using that if it had been a a project in a community you could then link it to the bigger issues of how that project came about but initially people just wanted to know well what's the project it's in my neighborhood what is it all about and i think likewise when it comes to identifying better those households and when i say identifying better first identifying then and ha but also having a better relationship with them on the ground you know, the accumulative data that can be brought together is really helpful. But you want those trusted intermediaries to be able to then use that to be able to reach those people. So, for example, if a mail shot or whatever it is has failed or cold calling from God knows where, um, you know, a centre, you know, they just get, you know, rejects. And we, we looked at some figures, actually, for um, people who are absolutely entitled to free insulation which is still the fabric first is still probably a you know, primary yeah. uh, need to address short of having heat pumps and everything else. 
we found that sometimes two thirds of the cost was in trying to find that person and get them to say, yes, we can come to your home for something that is, you know, hundreds of pounds, not more than maybe a thousand pounds to get done. So you look at those costs and you say, that can't be right. Two thirds to find, <laughs> you know, two thirds of cost to find someone and then this, and then they're still rejecting it. So you've got to have those sort of like local people, whether it's a local authority or the local authority working in partnership with residents and tenants associations or with the um, Citizens Advice Bureau or any other, quite frankly, it, can, it doesn't have to be a you know one size fits all. It's first of all, who is there? Who's got the capacity? If they need more capacity, that might be useful to help support. But importantly, they can trust it and see the approach from beginning to end and the end being hopefully someone either getting the financial support they're entitled to um, to help them and or uh, getting their home uh, retrofitted so it's warmer. I, I really like this idea of, of not technology or data or, or anything uh, as a shiny good in and of itself, mm -hmm. um, but as a complement to where those powerful relationships already exist mm -hmm. and, and that kind of distributed and very, you know, it will vary by location, it will vary by mm -hmm. household or um, intent even but enabling those people to do more with the relationships they have rather than having some monolith leviathan at the center that, that is decreeing what good mm. looks like. Mm. Um, and presumably for that, you would then need some sort of kind of coalition of the willing, I guess. Yeah, like it's, it's a good phrase, like, yeah. Like what, what, is it that's, what is it that we can do? What, what's either holding us back or what could turbocharge us in terms of, of moving some of this stuff forward? Yeah, I think coalition of the willing is a is a it's a really useful phrase because the interdependency, the and also interoperability of this, these some of these things as well is really key too. What's holding it back? Um, I think part of it is that in energy in particular, we're dealing with a lot of private suppliers, companies, and they all want to do their own thing. Mm -hmm. I sort of get that because the mantra is being, you know, if we have lots of different suppliers. They can compete each other and offer different things. And I'm not making the case for nationalization <laughs> here because, you know, sometimes, you know, having just one owner is not helpful either. But I think, you know, there's a degree in all of this that, um, and again, there's a lot of discussion going on sort of post the sort of this, you know, well, not post, we're still in it, but the price surges, the whole issues around energy security, have we got enough? Because obviously that, if we haven't, that drives pushing prices up. But I think it's also we've the idea that we were going to have lots and lots of different entrants, you know, insurgency into the market has, it may come back, I don't know, but I don't think it's as, as primary a concern for government now as it was in, say, 2010 to 2015, where it was all about shop around, shop around. Yeah. We want all these newcomers to come in and do this. Well, you know, with the best one in the world, we saw that some of those hadn't got the foundations to be able to stable enough to deal with a crisis and, and actually bill payers are paying for that because the costs of other companies taking on those customers, we're paying a, a surcharge on our bills through that, all of us, and, and that includes the fuel poor. Um, I think also, and this is for Ofgem, the regulator, uh, is to separate out um, those areas where we want to encourage innovation and initiative. And that really also comes down to the energy suppliers about, well, what sort of tariffs are they offering? You know, have they got a mix of tariffs that, you know, um, are attractive to people to look whether they stay yep. with an existing supplier? But alongside that, I think there's just a common core, which is essential because of the nature of the product, where um, more more 
cooperation, more sharing of information, more learning in terms of how to support vulnerable customers, um, how to work with Citizens Advice and all the other organisations who are working on the ground is really important. And and sometimes, you know, this idea that we're competitive, we're private companies almost gets in the way. And ultimately, that can come back and bite the companies. The difficulty is in the public domain, it doesn't really get much discussion until something really bad happens. Yeah. And that is awful because it takes a crisis to get people to act. And that's what we need to avoid. Is there anything we can learn from the forced installation of prepayment meters, from the number of people who are on... They're not. They're on the old prepayment. It's not even on smart prepayment meters. You know, I think it's something sixty percent of domestic households are on smart meters. Now, again, there's a lot of debate about that. But you know, in the best way, smart meters could be really helpful with looking at how people are using energy and you know sharing information from elsewhere to know that this person isn't not using energy because suddenly they're really energy efficient. <laughs> they're not using energy because something else is going on here that may be harmful that may be harmful because they feel they can't afford uh, to use the energy um, and therefore they're just not using it. So I think sort of cooperation, learning how to work together, not just the energy suppliers, but I think the water companies, the network operators, yeah. who are the people when there's a flood? Who are the people when there's an outage? Can we get a, you know, can we get a sort of, you know, help pack to people with what they need, you know, in terms of supplies because they can't get out to the shops and things like this? What do we know about cold, damp homes, sharing information, how to address that, how to deal with that? And that involves a lot of housing providers as well in that conversation. So I, I just sort of think it's a cultural problem, to be honest, not really a, a sort of physical problem as such. It's a cultural problem and people's willingness to change the way they behave um, and think differently, think more creatively without them thinking that somehow this is affecting their brand, their individuality, their bottom line. Um, I don't think the arguments stack up for that. No, and, and I think it's really interesting you talk about the kind of culture and the, the thought process that you, know, you were talking there about information from different places and bringing it together and this isn't a, it isn't an off-gem problem or an off-what problem or an off-com problem you know I, I know there are individuals like uh, Matthew Clark at the cabinet office and so on starting to look at actually hold on these are holistic yeah. issues and we don't solve them by saying oh and as a result here is the one size fits all but we do need to bring people together and, and look at the patterns or you know, what, where are those patterns that to go back to your your point at a local level you know right like you mm. we see it in the people mm. that live on mm. our street where mm. when things start to go wrong you notice bits and pieces about how they're shopping how often they're coming out you know, their health whatever else it might be and think okay well i can tell something's going on and i will volunteer because they're a mm. next door neighbor like can, is there something i can do being able to do that at a national scale in terms of impact while enabling the individual constituent parts to come together and cooperate, as you yeah. say, seems seems to me very important. And I and I think again, it also has to be a healthy, a healthy approach to technology as well, which also recognises it can fail. Mm. You know, and the agility to act quickly. And again, I go back to being curious. I mean, obviously, at the moment, you know, one of the big stories that we're, you know, it's been a story for 20 odd years, but the Horizon situation and the sub postmasters and what happened to them, I'm sure when that scheme was being set up, you know, it wasn't a plan no. <laughs> to, to end up with, you know, sub postmasters um, being a situation where there's, their accounts didn't stack up. It was presumably meant to be helpful. 
but again, that sort of um, willingness to sort of, you know, say, hang on, is there something bigger happening here than just this one individual saying they're having a problem with the system? And I think, again, I think transparency and candor about these things is really important because I think what we've seen, you know, I, you know, watched the TV program myself and, you know, again, astounded how, I mean, obviously some, you know, that was a drama, but I think, and it's, I'll say at the top of the program, some of this is based on true events. However, what we know from watching that, but also the other real evidence that's come into the public domain, they weren't being listened to. And, you know, suddenly you're thinking that all these people are, you know, criminals um, when there's no evidence of why that would suddenly happen. And then collecting the information together as well from your, you know, ringing up the call people to say, I've got a problem here. Who was, when you collect that, and again, I think it's really hard setting up these systems. When I was public health minister, I, I didn't lead on it. Um, but because the, um, minister who did lead of it was in the House of Lords. I used to have to pick it up to answer questions in the House of Commons. And, um, you know, this was all about how can we get, you know, a sort of shared patient record. We're still talking about that today. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, oh my God, this is back in 2005. But I mean, you know, GPs, how do we link in the GPs? There was things about choice systems as well. They, GPs could go on and see which hospital could do the treatment, might for all this sort of thing. And, it, you know, again, it was, you know, classic situation where you know GPs as you know really small businesses had all gone independently individually and got their own tech in their own software hardware connectivity how do you do that connect that together um you know how do you train all these people and all this and it was honestly and then of course with anything and again I'm not an expert for your listeners I'm not an expert this but also from my experience as well with often government IT systems whether it's in health or defence or, or what have you, is they start off with an idea and then people get really excited because they think, well, hang on, what if we add this on? What if we add that on? What if we ask it to do this? What if we ask to do that? Now, again, I am a lay person in all this and I sort of get it, think, you know, think future thinking, well, hang on, if we're going to do all this, I'm going to spend whatever amount of money on it. Can't we tap into this and get this on it? The problem is, actually, I think probably what I realise now you know, more so than I did then. It's so fast moving, the technology. You cannot future-proof it all and get the perfect model, you know, up and running and think, oh, we're going to have 10 years out of this because actually that won't happen. So the question is, is if we do this and get this right and actually, you know, create that alliance um, together of everyone backing it on the professional side of things and the public policy side of things, but also win the trust of people using it. So... It might not do everything, but what it does do, it does it well. The question is, is if we want to do more down the road, what's our flexibility? Yeah. What's our agility to do that? Um, I'm not, I wouldn't be able to answer that question. But I think people got stuck on projects that had to do be all singing, all dancing, when we were dealing with such a basic level out there of understanding of how to use this system, let alone worries about holding people's data and who you should share it with that we didn't get the basics right. Yeah. And I think there's probably, you know, there's a number of different, I think, schemes across Whitehall and not just, and also in town halls as well and across the world where this hasn't, they haven't got this right. So just having a little less arrogance about the whole thing and knowing that these systems are, you know, they're fallible, they're weak. Um, and going back to the point, they don't always work the way you want them to work and people don't always behave whether you, they want them to behave. Oh, Caroline, you, I'm I'm so triggered in the in the best possible way right I'm now. I, like, I'm sat I'm sat here just 
um, wanting to broadcast this everywhere all at once because I just couldn't agree more. I mean, the the two things that you encapsulated perfectly for me are the arrogance of computer says, and therefore it must be right. Mm. So mm. I saw a quote actually in the Horizon scandal without without bagging on anyone, but it was uh, the post office asked, there are these things, could they be being changed by someone else? And the response was, no, the only two ways it can be changed is by the system or the sub postmasters. So it's the sub postmasters fault. Yeah. Like you've just offered two options and then the next sentence is, and as a result, the sub-postmasters are doing it. Yeah. It's like unbelievable. And the second is the, is I think the future fatigue you get from this new thing will solve all problems for yeah. all people in all cases. Yeah. And everyone knows it's horseshit, frankly, going in. <laughs> and I've seen it in the NHS. People then get very frustrated because you do have to be trained on it and you all have to learn a new system and it's the new whiz-bang thing that's going to last for 20 years. And meanwhile, the hardworking staff are sat there going, cool, we'll just keep our post-it notes though, right? Because this is definitely going to fall over at some point and won't, won't work for the edge cases or won't work in these scenarios or won't work for this. And instead to focus on that agility that you spoke of, of does it make an improvement? Great. Okay. Mm -hmm. And can people trust that? And do they see the benefit in their lives? Yeah. You were talking earlier about the end-to-end -end process. Like if I give you information or if I, allow, if I sign up to something or if I engage with you, do I personally see a benefit? Do I get a fair value exchange for what comes out at the other end? Or does it disappear off into the ether somewhere with some nebulous promise that at some point in the future we'll yeah, exactly. live on sunny exactly. climbs? I think last time we had a chat... Um... I think I, I shared with you an example of when I was a new MP back in 97 and um, someone came to see me, who um, a gentleman who had various health um, needs and, and disabilities. Anyway, he'd been trying, bless him, um, through the DWP. To, he thought he wasn't getting his um, entitled benefits and he'd been trying valiantly um, to try and get it sorted himself and it wasn't working. Anyway, he came to see me and, you know, I've always said, you know, the, the, you know, probably the only superpower that a member of parliament has is if you do ask a question or you do ask for more information, whatever the to whatever organisation, whether it's a government department or whoever, you know, um, they sort of have to give you an answer. It might not be the answer you want, but <laughs> they do at least have to answer you and consider it. And for this particular gentleman, I mean, it really just did take, um, and I always like to put something in writing rather than just you know, have that record, that trail, was to basically just, you know, lay out what he'd said to me, give obviously the relevant identifier details, the fact that he'd said he was happy for the information to be shared with me and, you know, a few yeah. protocol things, you know, which is, you know, important in the area we're talking about. And anyway, the long and the short of it was basically because of the nature of the way the disabilities were segregated and the way they were done, there was a particular um, uh, payment that hadn't been added onto his total. And that was it. That was the problem. It was either inputted wrongly or someone had it was a legacy benefit from a previous era because governments come in and change the benefits and they're not retrospective. So you keep these legacy benefits and yeah, it's yeah, complicated. And anyway, I mean, you know, he got something like four grand which is a lot, mm. a lot to a person in that situation. And, uh, and I'm not again trying to blame anyone but this sort of just sometimes just checking and doing the basics of checking is really important and I do feel for some of the people in the various call centres that are employed by 
you know, whoever it may be, you know, the DWP, the energy companies or whatever it is when, because often they'll be given scripts, won't they? And yeah. they'll say, if the, if, <laughs> if the customer says this, go to this, go to that, go to this. And I think, you know, there's a really good examples of where often those people are in isolation. They're not seeing the whole picture and th- seeing that maybe this is more than just a one-off situation. And when you're dealing with a sort of, you know, cohorts of people into their millions you might think to yourself I'm taking this call but I've only dealt with you know 10 cases like this but you know what I mean I you can't really sort of level it up to this scale of the problem and I think that's again you know where the individual call handler can't do that on their own but there needs to be people who are pulling together and the call handlers need to feel they can be honest with their employer about what's coming through any queries they have, they should be able to sort of be able to as peer support, be able to share that. Um, so you're not going to always stop every problem. There will be mistakes made. Let's just be honest about that. But it's your ability to have an open culture that is interested in knowing where things might go not so well, as well as where things go right. Um, and exploring that and being open to that and being curious about that, I think is really, really, really key. Yeah, that ability to to not focus on the blame mm. um, and to not weaponize information. You know, like if you report a number of calls that weren't resolved yeah. in five minutes, you know, that's not a problem. That's a pattern or a texture that we can start to understand yeah. and look at. And and like you say, it may be that across six call centers, they each only had only had a handful that matched this pattern. But across all of them, exactly. It's dozens and dozens. And, yeah, and that, going back to the horizon thing, there's cl- clearly a situation there. I mean, there's other under discussion as part of the inquiry is how much was known and wasn't shared. But also you do get the sense that people were saying, but we haven't, no, this isn't. Yeah, only for me, people. this is an isolated case. And- yeah, exactly. And when you, you know, now I was reading over the weekend, I think it was a thousand individuals who were found guilty, some of whom who've not survived to the present day yep. where things, it looks like compensation is going to be made i mean again it's a it's a things can go wrong even with the best intentions things can go wrong understand the frailties of where you've got people involved they don't enter things properly or maybe not been trained to do something they haven't followed up but also you know we know that you know technology goes wrong bugs and whatever in the system that's why you know a lot of time is spent as far as i'm aware stress testing these systems out I think it's sort of case, you know, you know, stress test it once, twice, and when you think you've stress tested enough, stress test it again. Yeah. Um, you and know, probably still assume and, that it's going to break. And continue to have those yeah. safety valves um, whilst it's in operation, because at some point, as we mentioned earlier, it'll have to be upgraded. There'll be something new, so you're going to then say, "Oh, we're adding something new into this. How are we going to make that work?" And in the NHS, clearly, clearly, AI and technology could be so helpful, so useful. But, you know, if you lose people's confidence once, it's damaging for a lot longer than the action of what went wrong. And as we look forward, I always like to kind of end with a what would be your call to action? What can what can anyone listening to this do or what should they be doing or how might they behave that would move us forward and, and achieve the sort of societal impact that you've been pushing for? 
Well, I think, you know, first of all, is, this, is the stark reality of just in 2024, can we really hold our heads up high while there are so many people in our country, not just older people, but I mean, some of the families most at risk of coldness are with young children. If we can't crack this for what could be, you know, a lot of people, but a relatively small number of people, it is challenging, it is difficult because they're often marginalised and hard to reach. For goodness sake, you know, I just do not believe that this problem is something that is insurmountable. It is something we can do something about. We've got to be smarter. We've got to work more collaboratively. Uh, we need to do the, we need to prioritise what needs to be done first. We need to find ways to address some of the obstacles. A huge number of people are living in the private rented sector. So there's issues there about collaboration from landlords. But, you know, honestly, we can do this. I mean, <laughs> I actually just honestly do think that you can't just be doom mongers. We have to be hopeful and ambitious and we can do this. It reminds me of a story where <laughs> Tony Benn, when he actually was an, an MP, I think it was in Bristol at that time. And it was around the time. So we're talking, it must have been, it was that space race, the sort of, you know, from the 60s into the early 70s sort of thing. And I think he came knocking on someone's door and, and excuse me to any listeners if I don't get this quite right, <laughs> but he, he knocked on uh, a woman's door and he was sort of, you know, talking about all this sort of thing, you know, what we were doing, what he was doing, what the Labour government was doing, all this sort of thing under Harold Wilson, what have you, I think. And um, the lady sort of said to him, oh, Mr. Ben, you know, what I don't understand if we can put a man on the moon, why can't we sort out the number 93 bus service? And I, you know, that's what I think is, you know, missing here. You know, you know, fundamentally, there are some basics of what makes a good society. And if we can crack this one, it's not just an action in itself. It's the learning we get with it. It's the cultural approach we take to some of these big things. And it is so important because... You know, if we end up with a disaffected population that doesn't want to get engaged with the technology, that is going to really continue to be an enormous part of our lives and how we live and how it supports us, then that is really worrying. Because there's no we in that. It becomes an I. And that's not good for the way we live. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, per you. Perfect conclusion. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Ali. Thank you to Caroline Flint for that inspiring conclusion. Thank you as ever to Snaffle Podcast for the production, for Kennington Studios for hosting us, and to you for listening. Thank you.